celebrate you and are thankful for you. And I just pray God's blessing upon your life. And as we prepare to get into the word, we just like to pray a blessing for all of all of the moms. And maybe you find yourself a little discouraged as a mom this Mother's Day for different reasons. Uh, my experience has been that moms seem to be really hard on themselves. And the enemy comes in and wants to try to say, you're not doing good here, you're not doing good there. And may you just hear God's voice of encouragement tonight, that he loves you and that he's using you and just stay, stay on task in what the Lord has. And also like to pray for women that um, maybe you've always wanted to be a mom, but for whatever reason, the Lord hasn't allowed it. And this is a very painful uh, weekend for you. We'd like to just pray that God would comfort you and minister to you. Maybe some of you moms have, have lost a child and it's a, it's a difficult weekend. And I know that there's a lot of pain surrounding Mother's Day as well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, I, I thank you for my mom. I thank you for my wife, the mother of my children. And Lord, I thank you for all of the moms here this evening at Rocky Mountain Calvary. We do ask that you'd bless them, that you would encourage them. Lord, would they need wisdom that you'd provide it? Lord, that you would protect them from discouragement, that you would bless them in their relationship with their children, no matter what is the age of their kids. Lord, we pray for those women in our fellowship that this is a painful weekend. They long to be a mom. They have the desire for, for children, but yet you have not allowed it. You haven't opened that door. Would you comfort their hearts? Or would you let them know that you're using them in incredible ways? We also pray for the moms that have lost children, that you administer to their hearts. God, what a, what a deep loss and a deep wound. Only you can comfort and minister. Would you bless? And Father, as we open up your word tonight, we don't want it just to be our tradition, but we desire to meet with you. We desire to hear from you. We pray we would be strengthened in our conviction of your inspiration of your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're in verse 10. 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. Thanks for praying for the Detroit missions trip. They made it back on Wednesday. Had a great trip, and God did some amazing things. They were able to do an after-school program for some inner-city kids. Also be able to do some construction work on some homes that are opened up to people that live in the inner city and minister to Muslims and so it was a great trip, and thanks so much for, for praying. So, Well, you guys ready to get after it tonight, study the Word? I think that this section of Scripture is one of the most important. So if you would focus your attention on verse 10, and let's read down to verse 17. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecution, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecution I endured. And out of them, all the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, 
for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When I first moved to Colorado, I was fascinated by our mountains, probably as you were. I had to hike them. I found out that there's 54, I believe, 14ers, mountains that are 14,000 feet. And so as I came here to Colorado and to Rocky Mountain Calvary to be the junior high youth pastor, one of my first days off when the weather was warm enough, I had to go climb a 14er. Got my 14er book back when you bought books before you put them on your tablet or your iPad or whatever. It was, it was actually a physical book. It had paper and stuff and got driving directions of where to go, and I decided to head out to Hoosier Pass as you're heading into to Breckenridge. And one of the things that it says first in the book is you want to leave early in the morning because of thunderstorms, but I was young and stupid, and so I figured I'll head up there in the afternoon, and it should be just fine, right? And so everybody's coming off the mountain, and I'm pulling up to the mountain in my 92 Honda Accord, and I get up there, and I preserve the muffler somehow as I'm going on this dirt road and start hiking Democrat. And that was my first 14er. And it's probably one of the easier ones to start with because you begin above tree line and you start start hiking. So I'm going and I'm going and I'm by myself, which you're not supposed to really do when you're hiking 14ers as well. And I'm thinking this isn't too bad. And I'm going and I'm going and I'm going. I'm like, there's the summit. Hey, this is, this is pretty easy. And I get to this summit, and it's a false summit. And if you've hiked 14ers, you know that most of them have a false summit, and you're nowhere close to the top. It was so mentally devastating at that point. And I had to give myself the little Cartier pep pep talk. You know, keep going. You can do this. You're not going to die. I had to continue. I did continue, and I made it to the top of that 14er. And that's the theme of the message tonight is continue. That's the encouragement that's given to Timothy. If you've been studying with us, you know that we've titled this study Legacy because Paul is passing away. This is his last letter. He's about ready to be executed. Think of the passion as he's sharing with Timothy and he's saying, dear son in the faith, you need to continue in the things that you have learned. Much of the Christian life is not about learning new things. There's always new things to learn, but it's practicing what we already know. It's continuing in the things that we have learned. Timothy is doing well. He's walking with the Lord. He's serving the Lord, but yet he needs to be exhorted. He needs to be encouraged that he needs to apply the things that he knows. He needs to continue the things that he knows. And that's true for us. What have you learned and who have you learned them from? You need to continue in those things. Have you learned the importance of scripture? Continue in the scripture. It's not so much how much time did you log in the scripture last year or last week or last month, but what's this week going to look like in the scripture? Have you learned how important fellowship is? To be plugged in with the body of Christ, continue in it. The world and our flesh is always trying to pull us out of those basic truths that we have learned. So we begin in verse 10, it says, but you, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. If you remember back two weeks as we looked at the first nine verses, it was the perilous times. That in the end times, there's going to be crazy times where people are lovers of themselves. Everything flows out of that in this wicked downward cycle. But there is 
a difference with Timothy, but you. You're, you're different than this stream of selfishness because you've carefully followed my doctrine. He was very meticulous in what he followed. Brother and sister in Christ, gang, Rocky Mountain Calvary, you're going to follow something. You're going to follow someone. Who is it? What are you following? And are you carefully following the Lord? And Timothy, as a young man, this is what caused him to grow. This is what caused him to be effective, is that he carefully followed the doctrine that Paul had shared. Now, what is doctrine? It's what we believe about God, who God is, and how God wants us to live our lives. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. And the way we behave is going to flow out of what we believe. And Timothy, first, he carefully followed good doctrine, Paul's doctrine. What was the thing that Paul taught more than anything else? Jesus. And specifically, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amazing, crazy, good news that we could be so radically opposed to God, the enemy of God, but then in the moment that we put faith in Jesus Christ, God chooses to give us justification, that we're declared righteous. In that moment, he doesn't say, well, try harder, do better. I hope you attend the new believers class. And if you attend the new believers class, then you are officially a believer. But if you don't attend the new believers class, we're not sure if you really meant it. That's not what God does. When there's sincere faith, he gives justification. He declares you righteous. You're a son, you're a daughter of God. How can God flip that switch so quick? Because of Jesus and the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And that's what Timothy had carefully followed, was the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This may be old hat for you, but we need to be careful that we don't ever move away from the gospel, that we don't ever move away from the doctrine of Jesus Christ and him crucified and realize that it's Christ's work through faith that brings us into favor with God. Also, Timothy followed carefully the manner of life of Paul, So when you see someone who loves the Lord, who's being used by God, get to know them well and follow their manner of life. Look at their lifestyle. We get a little picture of Paul's lifestyle. He gave up comforts in this life for a life of significance. A significance and not in the world's way, but in God's economy to see people come to know Jesus Christ. He wasn't looking for success. He wasn't looking for comfort. He was looking for people to come into a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And Timothy followed that manner of life. He chose a a simple life, a life of sacrifice in order that people could come to know Christ as their Savior. I love this in verse 10. It says purpose. He followed the purpose that Paul had. We get an idea of what Paul's purpose was in life In Philippians chapter 3, Paul prayed this. He says, I want to know him and the power of the resurrection. Now, that's probably something you've prayed before. God, I want to know you. I want to know you deeply. I want to know you more. I want to know your power, the power of your resurrection. But he also prayed for the fellowship of his suffering. Now, that's a pretty bold prayer. I want to suffer the way you suffered, Jesus. I want to share in common the kind of suffering that you had. Why would Paul pray that? Because he knew as he suffered like Christ that he would know Christ in a greater way. Haven't you found that to be true? When you go through suffering, it causes you to appreciate Christ. 
Specifically, if you go through suffering for righteousness' sake, he actually prayed for it. That's how bad he wanted to know Christ. The last that you don't hear much about is he prayed to be conformed to his death. He realized that Christ didn't come to please himself. Christ didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he prayed for this. God, make me more like your death and willing to lay my life down. This is the purpose of Paul's life. What's the purpose of our life, if we're honest? Not just something we put down on paper. We can easily put a really attractive purpose on paper. This is my purpose in life. I'm going to write it down. But our purpose is seen in our daily passions and our daily pursuit. Also, what he carefully followed was the faith that Paul had. We can begin to learn how to trust God and take steps of faith by seeing it in other people's lives. Some things are best caught, not taught. You know what I mean? Like you can talk to your children about how to swim. Or you can get in the pool with them and show them how to swim. It's caught. It's something that, that's seen. And you can try to explain to somebody how to play basketball. Or you can get out there and play basketball with them. And it was by watching Paul take steps of faith and live through hardship that then Timothy began to mimic that kind of faith. It's okay to do that in a mentor that you see in their life and saying, I'm going to trust the Lord the way they trusted the Lord. Also, we find in long-suffering, long-suffering and perseverance and sandwiched in the middle of those is love. What does long-suffering mean? Well, just like it sounds, to suffer long, something nobody really wants to do. Timothy realized to serve the Lord means that there's going to be suffering. There's going to be perseverance. Times where you have to continue when you feel like giving up. Also, one thing that he carefully followed is love. The love for God and the love for people. And this is the most important thing. Church, if we miss this, we've missed God's heart. We've missed who Jesus is. To be in love with God, to be in love with people. It says a lot here about Timothy goes on now and focuses on persecution and affliction. Verse 11. Persecution and affliction would happen to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecution I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So we want to follow Paul's manner of life. We want to follow his purpose. We want to follow love and faith. But let's be honest. Do we really want to follow in persecution and affliction? That's the challenge for Timothy that Paul's giving him, saying, you need to follow me in these things as well. You need to be willing to suffer. This is found in Acts 13 and 14, these three cities. On Wednesday night, we're going through the Bible, and right now, we're headed into this section. So if you want to study this more, come and join us on, on Wednesday night. I'm going to give you a brief overview. What happens in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, I'll read it to you. This is Acts 30 verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women. Now, it's one thing if you stir up prominent men, but it's a whole other thing if you stir up prominent women. You know what I'm saying? Because you get a bunch of powerful women upset, and you've got a movement. You know what I'm saying? You've got real trouble. So they know who to go to. They know who's got the power. So they stir up the devout and prominent women and also the chief men of the city, and they raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. Reads pretty quickly, but how would you like to be hated so much that you're kicked out of Colorado Springs? 
powerful people in the city say, hey, you can't be here. El Paso County, you got to go live in Pueblo or, or Trinidad. You're out of here, you know, we're kicking you out. So what does Paul do? He moves on from Antioch and he goes to Iconium, Acts 14, verse 5. And when, violent, and when a violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them. Paul's got to be going, man, it just goes from worse to worse. I get away from Antioch, I come to Iconium, and now there are these violent men, both Jews and Gentiles, and they don't want me just out of the city. They want to beat me up and they want to stone me. They want to kill me. So he leaves from Iconium and he goes to Lystra. And I'm just giving you brief snapshots. You'll have to go back and read and see the detail of what takes place. Now this is Acts 14, verse 19 through 20. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Who came? The guys that hated him from Antioch. The guys that hated him from Iconium. Now they actually stone Paul to the point where they think he's dead but yet he's not. And the believers come around Paul and he rises up and he goes on to the next city. Now Paul brings up these three cities and says, Timothy, you need to be willing to suffer in these ways. You need to follow my example and this attitude towards suffering. Verse 12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Have you guys ever seen Bible promise books? They're pretty cool. I'm sure now you can look it up online, but it takes all of the promises of God and puts them in a nice book, a little book that you can carry around in your pocket and memorize all these promises of God. My great aunt Bertha, she was a real woman of faith and she had one of those bread boxes of God's promises. Anybody ever seen those? It's like totally old school. Anybody? Five of you saw those, okay. But it's just this plastic loaf of bread, but inside of it were all these promises of God. So when you're eating dinner, you pull one of those out and you'd read them. And there are things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Guess what? In the Bible promise books and the bread of life promise, you never find this verse. It's never there. No one wants to memorize this verse, but it's a promise. It is. This is a promise of God. Let's check it out. It says, yes, all who desire to live godly that stands out to me. Not only if you're godly, but if you just desire to be godly. If you just decide, you know what, I'm going God's direction. I want to be godly. That's what it says here. If you just desire that, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to get cheesecake every night served for dinner. You're going to be a millionaire. You can name it and claim it. You're going to get a promotion at work. If you're single, oh, you're going to marry Mr. Wright, Mrs. Wright. It's going to be incredible. Now, what does it say? It says you will suffer persecution. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. Today, I saw this bumper sticker stood out to me. and It said, atheism, the answer to religious terrorism. Do you get the message there? That people that are too fanatical for God lead to acts of terrorism. So if we're tired of acts of terrorism, let's be atheists. Let's not believe in a God. I'm like, wow, thanks for lumping me in with radical terrorists, right? 
Not everybody who believes in God is a radical terrorist. But you see the mindset shifting towards godliness in our country. And we've kind of lived in an anomaly where there hasn't been a lot of persecution. But historically, with the church, there's been persecution. And so we shouldn't be surprised if there's persecution that comes in our lives when we live for Christ. Some of you have experienced it. You've experienced it in your family. And that's a very difficult place to experience persecution. You were thinking that they would be so geeked out because you're in love with Jesus Christ. And you go tell them about what Christ is doing in your life and you have become ostracized in your family. Some of you have been persecuted in personal relationships and in friendships. Now, please understand this. Sometimes we make sinful decisions and act just downright stupid and we blame it on godliness. We're like, man, I'm getting persecuted for godliness and everybody around us is saying, you're just getting persecuted for being Eric. You know, you're just not doing good things right here and this has nothing to do with the Lord. So we need to be careful just because they're opposition. It may be because of choices that I'm making. It may be because of ways I'm approaching people, but there are those times where you can really look back in your life and go, I was operating in godliness and there was persecution. Now, what's your attitude towards persecution? If it costs you something, your love for Jesus Christ, would you give up on your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is this a matter that you've settled in your heart and your mind? If God's called you to do something and then all of a sudden there's some hardship that comes with it, there's some persecution that comes with it, and this is what Timothy needed to own. It's what we need to own in, in our own lives and realize that there will be persecution that comes with godliness. But remember, if we do suffer in that way, what an opportunity to know more about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but evil men and imposters, so they're phonies, they're fakes, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is part of the end times. This is part of the first nine verses of this chapter. That evil men and imposters, they're going to multiply. They're going to get worse. The evil is going to get worse. They're going to be deceived and also be deceived themselves. This is what's scary about believing a lie. Is over time, it gets to a point where you're deceived as well. Not only are you an instrument to deceive others, but you're deceived yourself. This is all the more reason to know the truth. This is all the more reason to continue in the things that you've learned. As we read the scriptures, we do see that things get darker and darker before the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, which means we're to press in all the more. We're to press into Christ. We're to press into his truth. We're to press into fellowship. Verse 14, but you must... Hear the passion in Paul. You must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them. Again, this contrast, it's the second time in these verses that Paul has used it. But you, you're, you're different than these apostles. You're different than these men that are growing worse and worse. So I want you to continue. Don't stop at the false summit. Don't stop at the first moment of discouragement. Don't give up when your legs are knocked out from underneath you. Continue in it. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be failure. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be persecution. But continue in what you've learned. And what had Timothy learned? Everything that we read in verse 10. 
the purpose, the manner of life, the faith and love, those are the things that he's to continue in. As we'll go on to read the scripture, he's going to continue in the scriptures. If we were to evaluate our lives and our spiritual walk with the Lord tonight, would you say that you're pressing into the things that you've learned or a little bit on cruise control or possibly drifting tonight? A lot of times we think we're kind of on a plateau spiritually. We're just like, hey, everything's going fine. I, I don't really feel myself drifting from the Lord. But we can't really say that we're pressing in to the Lord. I know for me, some of the most dangerous times spiritually is when things are going good. When everything's just kind of okay and there's no real big challenges. Because when there's really big challenges, I tend to press into the Lord and press into those things that I've learned. And I find them on myself on my face before the Lord. But I need to be careful in times of blessing. Maybe you're just a little bit numb tonight. Maybe you've been numb for a little bit, for a little while. And this is for us. Continue in it. Get after it. Be aggressive with those things that the Lord has shown you. And also, remember who you've learned them from. This is taking Timothy back to his relationship with Paul, but who has God brought into your life? Was there a pastor that was in your life when you first came to know Christ as your Savior, and you're thankful for them, and that relationship is an instrument of encouragement? Was there a parent that invested in you? Was there a mom, a dad, a grandparent? Was there a coworker? You fill in the blank. You know that person that you learned from. They're not perfect, but they were a great source of encouragement in your life. Verse 15, and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise from salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul invested in Timothy, but he was not the first to invest in Timothy. We know his mom and grandma invested in Timothy, and he knew the scriptures from childhood. What a blessing for Timothy. What a great encouragement to you moms, (laughs) To be able to give the word of God to your children. To give the word of God to your grandchildren. Pastor Chuck Smith, who started the first Calvary Chapel, he tells stories of his mom teaching him how to read with the scripture. That's how he learned to read, was the scripture. His mom sat down with him and said, all right, Chuck, it's time to learn to read. Charles, it's time to learn to read. And showed him out of the scripture. It impacted him in a great way. So many men and women of God go back to a godly mom, a godly grandma, a godly father that invests them in the scripture. Parenting's hard. It's wonderful. It's hard. It's wonderful. It's hard. Sometimes we get lost in what we're to do as parents. There's so many parenting books. I remember when we had our oldest, Hannah, and you read a couple parenting books, and it was just on the real basic stuff, on the infancy stuff, and there was like two radically different views on what you were supposed to do with an infant, and both of them put it in such a legalistic way, if you didn't follow their book exactly, your kid was going to turn out to be an axe murderer. Like if your kid had a pacifier, there was no hope for them, you know, because they had a pacifier. And then the next book you read, it's like if they don't have a pacifier, they're going to turn out to be an axe murderer as well. And it's like, I was like, man, it's got to be a lot simpler than this. You know, I remember turning to Amber, how about we try to love our kids? How about that? You know, let's let's try to love them and, and trust the Lord. And how about the simplicity of sharing God's word with our kids? Saying, I'm going to make mistakes. Unfortunately, you know, sinners get together and have sinners. It's crazy, isn't it? You know, I'm a sinner. We're, we're sinners. And what do we do for our kids? The best thing that we can do for them 
is give them the word of God. Give them the word of God. And Timothy's reminded of his spiritual heritage, that from childhood he had the scriptures. Why would we want to pass on the scriptures to others? Why would we desire it in our lives? Notice what happens. It makes you wise for salvation. The Bible doesn't save you, but it makes you see your need for salvation through Jesus Christ. The scripture doesn't return void. It's powerful. It exposes us to the goodness of God and the love of God and reveals to us that we're sinners and we're in need of grace. It makes us wise for salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. Not a lot of things that can do that, but the word of God can do that. And that's why we want to have God's word in our lives and share it with others. What are some ways that you can do this? with your kids, with your grandkids, with those that are around you that may not even be in your family. One of the best ways, I think, is to have God's word impact you to the point where you can't help but share it with others. Where you get in it for yourself, and it's not necessarily, okay, here's the Bible study for a sixth grader. Here's the Bible study for a ninth grader. Here's the Bible study for a kindergartner. Okay, I want to have devotions with my kids. So I'm going to get this family devotional book and we're going to sit down and read this. And they're sitting there. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's better that than nothing. But kids tend to listen when you say, you know what, I was in God's word today and I read this story and it touched my heart so much and it brought me to this in my life. And they're like, huh? What? Isn't that different for you? When someone sits down and says, all right, it's time for Bible time. Let's have Bible time. Like, okay, let's have Bible time. But then when they come and their heart has been touched, it's great to do it in a structured way. But the most important thing is whatever we're sharing, we want it to have touched our hearts. Verse 16, it's the key verse for tonight. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture. All scripture. All scripture. I happen to not be a Greek scholar, but I do know that all means all. It's crazy. Look it up for yourself. It means all. All scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is given by inspiration of God. What does this word inspiration mean? It literally means God breathed. God breathed his word. If you've got a Bible, hold it up for me tonight. Go ahead. Just hold it up. You got it there? This book that you're holding up, you can go ahead and put it down, is not like any other book. The rest of the books have human authors, but this is authored by God. It's breathed by the Holy Spirit. He moved in the hearts of the human authors to give us the word of God. This has always been contested. Satan, when he came and tempted Eve, what was his tactic? He said, has God really said? He tested the inspiration of scripture. He tested the authority of scripture. God didn't really say that. God doesn't really mean that. You can get out an eraser and erase that part of what, what God said. And Satan hasn't changed his method. He hasn't changed his attack. We see this multiplied in the day that we live, don't we? And it's one thing for people that reject Christ, that make fun of Christ, that are not claiming to be believers, when they say, well, the word of God's not inspired. This is a man-made book. But where we're finding this 
is in a lot of churches throughout our country and throughout the world that pastors cannot get up with confidence and say that God's word is inspired. And in fact, they're propagating this deception where the word of God is not the final authority. And we live in now this culture amongst God's people with an attitude towards scripture where you can take what you like and leave what you don't like. And that's extremely dangerous. It's either all inspired by God or it's not inspired by God. And you can't go through and go, I really like this part that says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but I don't like this part and what it says in this area of my life, so this part must not be inspired. You know? If you, I'm gonna do an illustration here really quick. So I'm teaching off my iPad. It's okay, it's still the Bible. You know, I don't believe I'm the Antichrist, but. So if you do a little double click right there, there's all these things that come up, these applications that I have. Hopefully I can get my notes back in a second. But. And I, and I want to close one. And I've got this little neat feature. And you just go, and you do that. You kind of come over here and you're like, this is actually Logos Bible software, which I really like. And, but I'm, you know, I'm just going to close it. And here's my calendar. I'm kind of tired of my calendar. I'm going to close that right there. And a lot of times that's our approach to the Bible. And it's sure easy to pick on other people, but in our own hearts and our own lives, we just go, never mind that. I'm not going to honor my parents. I'm an adult. Forget that. I don't like this part about anger. And we just begin to pick and choose what we want with the scriptures. But the scriptures are inspired by God. They're given to us by the Lord. Now bear with me as I pull my notes back up. It's a fair question to say, how do we know that the Bible is inspired? Is there facts behind our faith? It's not wrong to ask that question. So let me give you a few answers. First, we see the unity of the Bible. And maybe write these things down. You're going to be tested on the authority of Scripture. The unity of the Bible. Unlike any other book, we see 40 authors over 1,600 years. 40 different authors, 1,600 years, three different continents. So you have men that didn't even know each other because they didn't live in the same time. And guess what? you've got one message, Jesus Christ. That is the authorship of God. The unity of the Bible points to the inspiration of Scripture. Also, fulfilled prophecy. The Bible is very unique in fulfilled prophecy. In the Bible, there's 2,500 prophecies that appear on the pages of Scripture. 2,000 are fulfilled. 500 are yet unfulfilled. Do you think those other 500 are going to be fulfilled? So let's put this into a mathematical equation of these 2,000 prophecies that are fulfilled. If this is just going to happen by chance, by random chance, what's the probability that 2,000 futuristic prophecies would be fulfilled? Well, it's 10 with 2,000 zeros behind it. It's 10 to the 2,000th power. It's crazy, the probability of this. The only way that this could happen is through the authorship of God. There's the archaeological evidence of the Bible. They found in the Tell of Dan, which is the ruins of Dan, evidence, physical evidence of King David. This goes back to 9th century B.C. 9th century B.C. 
There's so many books that claim to be from God, and you open it up, and there's no archaeological evidence to back it up. But that's not the case with the Bible. The Israelites are not just some made-up group of people. You can go dig in Israel and see the proof of the things that you want to read in the Bible. The Bible is so accurate that even secular, unbelieving archaeologists study the scriptures to go find these things because they know it. In 2016, Lord willing, if we're all still here, if the rapture of the church hasn't happened, we're going to go back to Israel. And if you start saving your pennies now, it's worth it it's worth it. It's like a whole semester of Bible college at least because you get to experience these places and you actually get to walk in the ruins. You get to walk in the ruins. The archaeological evidence of the Bible is absolutely mind-blowing. The inspiration of scripture. David Guzik, who's a pastor in his commentary, says this about the Bible. The Bible is unique in circulation. It's the most published and popular book ever written. It's always on the top of New York's Times bestseller list. The Bible's unique in translation. It was the first book translated. If you're new to the scripture, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. And so it's been translated into many different languages so that it can be read. So it's the most translated Bible. The Bible's unique in its survival. This isn't new. You're opening up ancient manuscripts. And these manuscripts have been preserved through ravenous times, through persecution, through criticism. The Bible's unique in its honesty, isn't it? The heroes of the Bible, we see their flaws, we see their warts, we see their sins. And especially with ancient literature, they didn't take their heroes and put out their dirty laundry. And the Bible is unique in its influence. Maybe you're questioning the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. I'm just going to challenge you to do one thing. Read it. Read it all. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the Scripture because it's like a lion. All you have to do is let it out of its cage. But I pray that every single one of us as Christ followers is absolutely fixed in our conviction of the inspiration of Scripture. I said it two weeks ago, and I'm going to say it again. I think this is one of our most important Bible studies at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Because if we believe that this is God's word, then when we get together on the weekends and Wednesday nights and read God's word on our own, we're going to tremble. We're going to tremble before God's word. Because this is God speaking to us. This is God's love letter for us. But if God's word's not inspired, if it's not breathed by God, if it's not the final authority, and we just get to pick and choose then we're going to start to approach the word of God as good advice. It's inspired. So God's word's inspired. And then what does it do in our lives as we continue on? It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. So we see four things. First, the word of God's profitable for doctrine. So how do we know who God is and how he wants us to live our lives? Right here. You get into the word of God. That's the way you're going to have sound doctrine. You don't want to take your doctrine from pastors. You don't want to take your doctrine from Christian books. Everything that you hear from pastors and Christian books and Christian radio and podcasts, you take back to the Word of God. Is it in the Word of God? If they're telling you the Word of God, then hold on to it. If it's not from the Word of God, then you need to spit out the bones. Have you heard that expression? You chew the meat and spit out the bones. You've got to do that when you're listening to anybody other than the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's profitable for doctrine, 
but also for reproof and correction. And these two are, are very similar. You ever been there with the Word of God? When God's Word just takes you to the mat, takes you to the table, you woke up and you're doing your quiet time or it was late at night before you're going to bed or you're listening to a teaching on the radio and they're sharing the Word of God. Maybe you're in the sanctuary and all of a sudden the Spirit of God through the Word of God touches your heart. I man, that's me. That's me. I remember the first time this happened to me. I was in eighth grade and I'd been challenged to read God's Word five minutes every day and make a commitment to do it. So I did it. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I had a hard heart towards God. But for some reason, I said, I'll make this commitment five minutes a day. So I was reading the Proverbs. And now I'm in my freshman year of high school. Still hadn't given my heart and life over to the Lord. And I was starting to get exposed to a lot of really worldly gals. And I was a really worldly guy as well. And the older guys on my basketball team were starting to say, hey, this is how it works. And I was really close to making some bad decisions. And I'm reading through Proverbs about chapter 5 and 6. And I'm like, man, that's the girl I'm about ready to date. I better run for my life. It says that her house leads to hell. I don't want to go to hell, you know? And the word of God just started to correct me. And I wasn't even walking with the Lord. And sometimes that's why we don't want to open it up. That's sometimes why we leave God's word alone. Sometimes that's why we don't want to come to church. Because we know that there's something that God is wrestling with. But I want you to see the authority of Scripture, but I also want you to see God's love in Scripture. See, this is a loving Father who's given His Son for you. This is love that blows our minds. And so when He says these things in Scripture, when He corrects us in Scripture, it's the ultimate loving Father that says, I know what's best for you. This is the way I want you to live your life. You've learned this, I've learned this, but it's much easier to respond to the correction that comes through the word of God than through the school of hard knocks. There's times we ignore the Holy Spirit, we ignore the word of God, and we pay the price. This is the value of the word of God. It corrects us, it reproves us, but it also instructs us in righteousness. What good is correction without instruction? Maybe in your job, you've got a boss that always corrects you, but doesn't teach you, that doesn't instruct you. And the word of God's gonna begin to teach you. It's gonna instruct you in righteousness and how to live out this Christian life. And verse 17 says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Remember Timothy's young. He's wondering, can I do this task of pastoring at the church of Ephesus? And Paul doesn't write this novel on ministry and say, okay, these are all the things that you need to know about pastoring and I'm going to put this in here and I'm going to put that in there. He says, you know what you need, Timothy? You need the word of God. And the word of God is going to make you complete. It's going to make you mature. The word of God is going to thoroughly equip you for every good work. Is there anything worse than not being equipped for a job? You don't have the tools. You don't have the knowledge. It seems to be my life story in home projects. I'm overly ambitious. I have the zeal without the knowledge. One, just one. I have many. I could go on for hours in this of not being equipped in home projects. But one of the toilets in our house was not working. That is a big problem. Atlantis, we have a problem. We have a toilet that is not not flushing. So me and my man skills, my man endeavors. I first, you know, 
try to stick the snake down the toilet. And that's not clearing out whatever's happening. So I take the toilet off. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. You know, I've got the porcelain god off of the hole, you know. And so I get my little snake and I start going down. And I think I feel something and I have no idea what, what I've hit. So I push a little further. And then all of a sudden it turns a corner and starts to go. And I hear this zing. And I didn't connect the little screw on the snake. And the whole snake went down the sewer drain in my house. And whenever, whenever I do a home project, my family just kind of gathers around for entertainment. And so the whole bathroom is filled with my, my little family. And Amber's in there and she just starts laughing and busting up laughing and I just look over at them and I said, I think I need a moment to myself, you know? <laughs> and then I had to call the plumber guy, you know, to come out and he's got the camera. Have you ever had that experience? Like they put cameras down your, your sewage lines. If you're a guy, that's pretty cool. You're like, wow, I've always wondered what's down there. And so they got this camera and stuff and you know, they found it and got it out. And it turned out that it was just the, the toilet paper holder, the roll thing, had gone into the toilet and was actually in the trap of the toilet. I didn't even need to be messing with the drain at all. And I failed miserably because I wasn't equipped. I, I wasn't equipped for the, for the task. I think a lot of times in the Christian life, we get really zealous and we get really excited and we're like, man, I want to try this. I want to do this. And, and that zeal is good, but we don't have the knowledge. We're not equipped. We haven't spent the time in the Word of God. And God's Word is going to equip you for every good work. Maybe it's marriage right now. Maybe that's the challenge. You know what? God's Word's going to equip you. Maybe it's parenting. God's Word's going to equip you. Maybe it's a difficult person on the job. God's Word's going to equip you. Maybe it's how do I live a sexually pure life? God's Word is going to equip you. Maybe it's the second graders in our church. God's Word is going to equip you. But we have to trust this because not only is the enemy in society saying that God's word is inspired, they're also saying it's not enough. There's Christians out there that are saying God's word's not enough. Excuse me, but they say poo-poo on the word of God. Go to all these other resources to be equipped. I'm all for other resources and reading them, but secondary to the word of God. If you want to get equipped for every good work, maybe put aside all of those other books for six months or a year and get into the word of God because God's word says it's enough. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand and pray.